So the first reading is Revelation chapter 12, which can be found on page 1238 in the Pew Bibles. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the numbers of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The reading is from Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, to Genesis chapter 20, verse 24, and starts on page 32 of the Bibles. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, 
Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son again, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is my Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Jacob bore Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, How happy I am! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Isaacar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. I wonder if you could keep that passage open as we look at it together. Thank you, Bethany, for reading. Well, that's quite a story, isn't it, for Father's Day? One desperately poor example of a father, four mothers, mandrake plants, whatever they are, and 12 children in seven years. Think of all the nappies. Mind-boggling. I think we need God's help to unravel this one. So let's pray. 
Father God, as we turn to this Old Testament narrative tonight, please help us to make sense of this story of Jacob, his wives, and his many children, and help us to see what you want to teach us through it. Please help me as I speak, and we pray that we would all hear your voice speaking to us. For your sake. Amen. Well, we have a gritty, wretched passage in front of us tonight, don't we? Moses doesn't hold back and spare us the unsavoury details of the family infighting. Everyone seems unhappy at some stage in the accounts. And yet, I think buried in this passage are some real reasons to be cheerful. We get a raw picture of what life in Jacob's family was like. Whatever you do, don't be like Jacob's family. There's a lot of point scoring going on, and Leah and Rachel both boast at some stage of the chapter and try to rub the other's nose in it. Both sisters want what the other one has, which means that neither of them enjoys what they do have. Both sisters want good things, love, a happy family, and children. There's bigamy, but this is not a story that's meant to teach us about morality, although Jacob is clearly deviating from God's plan for marriage by taking two wives. This narrative shows us humanity, as it really is. There's human jealousy, attempts at one-upmanship, and human scheming. Let's look into what is going on a little more closely. Last week, we saw that from the moment he met her at the well, Jacob longed for Rachel. All the smart money is on Rachel, the stunner, the favoured one, having the children, and Leah being sidelined. But is that how it will play out? If you remember from last week's passage... Jacob had been attracted by Rachel's beauty and had overlooked older sister Leah. However, Leah had snuck into the marriage bed and tricked Jacob into marrying her. However, it seems that Jacob wasn't that fond of her. Chapter 29, verse 30, Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. This week, as we pick up the story, we see that Leah longs for love. Leah was dissatisfied as Jacob obviously loved Rachel, whom he'd married seven years later, more than her. As we pick up the narrative in chapter 29, verse 31, Leah is desperate for her husband's love and approval. Moses, with beautiful understatement, describes her as unloved. In fact, for most of this chapter, she isn't interested in the Lord, only the affection of her husband. She believes that if she bears Jacob some children that he will love her more and she will give, gain his approval. She just wants her husband's approval and she won't have been the last wife in history to feel that way. So she has three sons in quick succession. The first she calls Reuben, which the footnote tells us means see a son. Now, the names the children are given in this chapter are hugely significant as they give us a window into family life. Was Leah trying to get Jacob's attention with the name? Or was she just point-scoring over Rachel, who at this stage of the chapter had no children? You can just imagine the situation at home. Leah says to Rachel, Please could you hold, see, a son, while I go and take a shower. But having one son doesn't seem to be enough to gain Jacob's love. See the end of verse 32. Surely my husband will love me now but it appears that Jacob still seems very indifferent towards her. Leah calls her second son Simeon. At this juncture, 
Leah seems to realise that all children are a gift from God and acknowledges this. In verse 33 we read, Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. Simeon, meaning the one who hears. But this was still not enough, so she has another son whom she calls Levi. Verse 34, Now, at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Levi was, of course, the son whose family were to become the Old Testament priests. At this stage, it's hard not to feel sorry for Leah. Despite her best efforts, she still seems unloved by her husband. And that is exactly the problem. Leah was trusting her own schemes rather than the Lord. Her strategy is, I'll do it my way. However, it's important to remember that true satisfaction does not come from human approval. Are we in danger of striving too hard for human approval from our parents, from the boss at work, from those in our home group or friends at church? We need to remind ourselves that true satisfaction in life comes from being forgiven by God and our relationship with him and that this is a satisfaction that will last into eternity. True satisfaction is found in our relationship with Jesus. Leah was not Jacob's favourite wife, and yet she had a fourth son called Judah, meaning, I will praise the Lord. Four sons later, she seems to have found happiness in God's gifts to her and stopped defining herself by her husband's approval or lack of it. Just for a moment, she acknowledges God here before returning to her schemes. And of course, Jesus was a direct descendant of Judah, as we can see if we read Matthew chapter 1. So Leah, the less favoured sister, is the one God chooses to bear the children, whose descendants will lead the people of Israel in temple worship, and whose descendant will be the Messiah. Maybe there's a lesson there for us. God chooses to use the less obviously impressive sister to work out his purposes. Are you someone who thinks, surely God couldn't use me? Well, think again. God used Leah, and he can use you too. Let's, not, let's turn our attention to Rachel now. Rachel longed for victory. Rachel had the love and approval of Jacob, her husband, but she had no children. Not having children can be really tough, and Rachel certainly found it so, as her sister popped out four sons in quick succession. She smarted at the score being 4-0 to her sister. Have a look at the start of chapter 30. This is what she angrily says to Jacob in verse 1. Give me children or I die. She quickly turns from beauty queen to drama queen. And with this angry manipulative shout, she ruins her relationship with her husband. She's jealous of her sister and she can't conceal it. She irritates Jacob and he rebukes her. Look at verse 2. Am I in the place of God who's kept you from having children? I think it's interesting to note here that jealousy took Rachel's eyes away from God, who is the giver of children, and makes her self-absorbed and angry with those around her. Is jealousy doing that to you? Are you jealous of the boy who's taking your place in the cricket team or the girl who's just been made a prefect? Are you jealous of the person who got the promotion instead of you at work or the person who kept their job when you were made redundant? 
Now, I'm not saying that these situations are not hard to bear, but being jealous will only make them fester inside us and make us feel worse, as it did for Rachel in our passage. I'm not sure how old Rachel is at this stage, but she seems to have forgotten that Sarah, Jacob's grandmother, was childless until she was 90 years old, and Rebecca, her mother-in-law, was childless a lot longer than her before giving birth to Jacob. The difficulty having children had not been uncommon in their family, but unlike Abraham and Isaac, who prayed to God about the situation, Jacob just gets angry and shouts at his wife. Rachel should have known that Sarah putting forward her maidservant to have children for her when she was childless had been a disaster, but she goes through with the same plan out of desperation. Just like Leah, we see that she is trusting her own schemes and not the Lord. She's prepared to stoop low enough to put Bilhar forward to sleep with Jacob. To some extent, the scheme works, and Bilhar bears two children for her, making the score 4-2. Again, the names are revealing. Rachel's first son she calls Dan, meaning he has vindicated me. And her second son she calls Naphtali, meaning I have struggled. But the story doesn't end there. Anything Rachel can do, Leah can do too. So she sends her maidservant Zilpah in to spend the night with Jacob, Her plan is also successful, and she gets another two children. For those of you who've lost count, the score is now 6-2. And one can feel Leah's boasting in the names she chooses for her next two sons. Gad, meaning, what good fortune, or a troop is coming. That must have really made Rachel smart, as she still had not given birth to a child herself. And Asher, meaning, how happy I am. Imagine how Rachel must have felt as she was asked to mind Leah's son, how happy I am, as Leah went to change what good fortunes nappy. It made Rachel all the more desperate to have a child herself, and desperate times require desperate measures, or so Rachel thought. So she goes for one last throw of the dice, or is it the mandrakes? Mandrakes were a pagan insurance policy for getting pregnant, They were a kind of cross between an aphrodisiac and a fertility drug. Please can you look down at verse 14, where we'll pick up the narrative again. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. Leah issues that classic romantic line, You must sleep with me. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar, meaning reward. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun, meaning honor. Notice Leah has given up on being loved. She's content with honor. 
Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dina. Rachel must have been in pieces by now, as Leah has two more sons, making the score 8-2 in the game of he who has the most sons wins. And Leah had a daughter as well. At the start of the chapter, we're reminded that only God gives children. And God waits until Rachel is at her absolute lowest and brought to her knees. Before we read verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. And in the Bible, when God remembers, he always acts. And this is what happens next. Rachel finally gives birth herself. The score is now 8-3. But the name Rachel gives her son is Joseph, who goes on to wear the Technicolor dream coat and rescue God's people in a time of famine. However, did you notice what his name means? May he add. Isn't that revealing? Rachel is not satisfied with giving birth to one child. She wants more. She longs for victory in this sibling war. There is no sense of thanking God for the gift of a child, just a pleading with him for more. Are we satisfied with all the good gifts God has given us? Or are we always grasping for more? But you need to be careful what you ask for, as Rachel would find out. In giving birth to another son in Genesis 35, it cost her her life as she died in childbirth when Benjamin was born. So the final score read, Leah, eight sons and a daughter, Rachel, four sons. So to sum up in these two chapters, Jacob longs for Rachel, but it isn't really love, it's infatuation. Leah longs for love, but doesn't get it. And Rachel longs for victory, but never really knows it. So what are we supposed to learn from this narrative? Is it, don't be like Jacob, Leah, or Rachel? I don't think so, but it could be. Is it a lesson about having lots of children won't necessarily make you happy? It could be, but I don't think so. Is it a lesson about sibling rivalry destroying family happiness? It could be, but I don't think so. Is it a lesson in how not to be a good husband, that washing our hands of difficulties in the family will not create family happiness? It could be, but I don't think so. So what is the message of this passage? I think it's a far more encouraging one. I believe it's that amidst the chaos, the upset, the anguish, the heartache, the squabblings, the jealousy, and quite frankly, the mess, God is at work fulfilling his promises. Let's have a look at where God is mentioned in this, in this passage, because he is always the hero of the story. Unlike Jacob, who seems to do virtually nothing except father children, God is at work. Let's have a look and see what he's up to. Chapter 29, verse 31, God opens Leah's womb. And 31 to 35, God provides each of Leah's further sons. Chapter 30, verse 2, God is seen as the source of all children, and Rachel acknowledges this. Chapter 30, verse 17, God listens to Leah. And verses 22 to 24, God listens to Rachel and takes away her disgrace. And through all of this, using imperfect people 
all of whom are clearly messed up, God is building his people just as he promised. All of these messed up people believe in God, and yet they have terrible motives. They commit numerous sins, and yet they love God. Jacob is not the best example of a husband, and Leah and Rachel are not much better. They are imperfect sinners like you and me, and yet God is building his people through them. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 26 is starting to come through, come true through them. This is what God promises Abraham. I will give you this land for your descendants. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. It was hard to see that this was happening when Abraham and Sarah had one son. It still didn't really seem to be coming to pass when Isaac and Rebekah had only two sons. But in this generation, we see God start to really get motoring in building the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi is born through whom the dynasty of priests arise. Judah is born through whose line Jesus is born. And we can see that God's perfect plan for salvation for the world and his building of his people is starting to come to pass and that his promises are starting to be fulfilled. A promise and a plan that we'll finally see we will finally see fulfilled with God's people gathered around his throne, as we heard in our first reading from Revelation 7. Revelation 7 verse 4 reads like this, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, and so on through every tribe. If we think of God's plan to build his people like an aircraft flight, the aircraft is taxiing on the runway in the lives of Abraham and Isaac. But with Jacob, it hits the runway and takes off. God is still building his people now, but one day the aircraft will land, and that is where Revelation 7 comes in. Listen to verse 9 of Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What a finale to the story. What a fulfillment of God's promise. Did you notice in verse 9 there, before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. Every nation, that's you and me. And if God is at work in this dysfunctional, dissatisfied and desperate family, is there not hope for us? You see, God can use dysfunctional families with desperately poor raw material to work his purposes out in the world. And if God can use this sinful family, surely he can use our family, our church family. Surely he can use even me. And that is the big surprise of this chapter. Just like Jacob's family, our world is full of heartache and pain, and yet God is still at work. And this is the undeserved nature of God's relentless grace. So don't be like Leah and Rachel and trust in your own schemes. Trust in the grace of God, who is sovereign over history. Despite the fact that God's people today 
carry the traits of Jacob's family, our amazing God is still using people like us to build his kingdom here on earth. I hope you're encouraged by that. I am. And so as Christians and as a church, we need to point away from ourselves and point to Jesus. Will you do that this week at school, in the office, at home, in the supermarket, at the train station? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who always keeps your promises. Thank you that we can see that your promise to Abraham is being fulfilled in our world today as you build a people from every tribe and nation, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Help us to trust your promises for us each day. And as we do that, to point others to you, the amazing, promise-keeping God.